This is Scott. I'm back for the last conversation of 2022. I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. So today we continue with season two's theme of the personal documentary. If episode one was about people who must wall themselves off from society, and if episode two is about people who are misunderstood by society, then today's film is about people who yearn simply to be accepted by society. I'm talking about transgender Americans, folks who believe they were born into the wrong body and who take steps to align their physical selves with the version that lives inside their heads. This takes courage in the America of 2022. American society doesn't speed toward justice so much as fumble its way in that general direction. Thankfully, we have filmmakers to help us move forward. And that brings me to Shalise Haas. About 10 years ago, well before gender identity became the trending social issue in America, Haas began following a young musician taking his first tentative steps toward becoming a male. In doing so, Haas humanized an issue that is too often analytical or political or rooted in old ideas of what it means to be a man or a woman. Gender reassignment, after all, is not a political journey. It's a personal one. Haas's sensitive documentation of Ben Wallace's journey to become a man culminated in the 2016 film Real Boy. It's a wonderfully nuanced film, free of politics and judge. It's about a girl who wants to be a boy, the family of friends who love him, and the mother who treads a painful path from denial to acceptance. Turns out, we can learn a lot about people we don't understand simply by watching them navigate their lives with grace and honesty. Real Boy is another one of those documentaries that took many years to make, and today we'll learn about Haas's own journey in making this film. So, Shalise, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Scott. So, I love this movie. What in particular attracted you to the story of Ben Wallace? So, I met Ben um, when he was doing a live performance of music with Joe Stevens, his mentor, who is also in the film, um, very, very early in his transition. He had met Joe at a conference um, for sober young people and was still really not only early in his transition, but he was a, he was an adolescent. He was still a young kid. Um, And Joe had been an icon of his. He had known his music. And when they met in person, Joe invited him to come up to Sacramento to, to play in this house concert. So I was actually there um, filming the concert, um, not necessarily with any interest in, in making a film. And I knew Joe from the queer community in the Bay Area. I had known his music for a long time. And, and I was just really um, captured by Bennett's music, by his lyrics, by the sincerity in his performance, even though he was very shy and not a very practiced performer as he's become today. Um, but I was also really struck by the, even though they had not known each other very long, by their relationship. Because in, you know, in within queer community, we have a relationship to chosen family that I think is really special. Whether or not your family of origin is, you know, supportive or in your life, I think the ways that we form chosen family within within queer community, and especially for, you know, for those of us where our lived experiences may not be reflected in our family of origin. So Bennett and Joe just had this amazing, immediate 
connection. Um, I was drawn first by the music and by this idea of, of chosen family. It wasn't until a few months later when I met Bennett's mom, Susie, and got to know her and, and sort of the deepening of the story with, with Bennett and his mom that I realized that the film was largely about, also about this journey um, of a parent to figure out how to show up for their kid. So as I mentioned, a documentary is a big commitment for you, the filmmaker. It's also a big ask of a subject. How did you broach the idea and how did that conversation go? No, I think that's such a great question because it really is a big ask. And you know, to be candid, I think this was my first feature-length documentary as a director. I'd worked on many films before, but this was the, the largest undertaking that I had made as a filmmaker. And certainly the first time Bennett, Joe, Susie had participated in a documentary. So I don't know that any of us really knew how big that ask was at the beginning. Um, and they will speak about this even today that, you know, at the time it just seemed like a great idea. Sure, you want to come follow me around with a camera. Um, you know, Bennett in particular was really excited to to tell his story, was really um, interested in in sharing it. Um, he had been, if you've, you know, you see in the film that Bennett has been a performer since his earliest days. A lot of the home movies that are in the film are of Bennett performing for the camera at three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old. So he was delighted by this idea. Now, by the time we were, you know, three, four years into the to the process, um, and and we and it was a much deeper storytelling, I think, than than he had anticipated. I know that that it was a big ask, and so a lot of that was a negotiation over time, and, and really respecting when people said not right now. But they were tremendously generous with their time and. Um, and vulnerability. Does that mean there's kind of a process of they think they know what they're getting into, but as the process unfolds, you're still having to coax them along? Yeah. And I, you know, I would actually invite one of the things that I know for myself has been in evolution over the last several years of my own filmmaking and in with my colleagues is, is also steering away from even the language of subject, right? Um, and and I think this is tied into to broader questions about the relationship we have as filmmakers with the people who participate, who agree to participate in a documentary and issues of consent, right? So someone might sign a release form that says, yes, I agree for you to use all of this in your film. And and I think the the importance of recognizing that, yes, even though that's a legal document that says you can use my image in your film, that it's not the end of the conversation. It's only the beginning. And that it is it is an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing relationship. And that it's really incumbent upon us as filmmakers to respect the fact that that we are, you know, we are in collaboration with people who are who are opening their lives to be um depicted in a film in a way that is always only going to be a partial depiction. So yes, it is absolutely an ongoing conversation um, and one that I think is really important to treat with, 
with the utmost care. So it's not about convincing or or coercing that it really is um, continuing to be in conversation with people who are in a film to make sure that they're on board and fully consenting throughout. So how do you actually develop that trusting relationship at the outset? I'm guessing you don't show up with a camera on day one and say, all right, let's go. How do you ramp up? I mean, I think it's like any relationship, right? It, it is one that is based on trust that has to be earned rather than, you know, I, I have heard in, in circles when people talk about documentary filmmaking, it's about like getting someone to trust you. And I think that that is, is probably less effective than, um, than any relationship that we might be part of where trust is earned and it's earned by doing what you say you're going to do. It's earned by being vulnerable yourself, sharing some of yourself, um, by, you know, by recognizing that there, that you are balancing the needs of a film. And often that means the needs of investors the needs of a schedule or the needs of a distributor, you know, outside of yourself and the needs of the people who are who are in the film. And so, you know, with Bennett and Susie and Joe, it was different with, you know, in my relationship with all three of them. I think Susie in particular, just a, a brief aside, the story when I so I met Susie in some ways by accident. Um, I had traveled from the Bay Area where I was living down to Pasadena where Bennett was living with his mom. And he had invited me to come down and film with him. Um, and he said, you can come down um, on this particular week. I I'll be there. And my family, my mom won't be there. They're apparently his, his mom um, and his father, they were... Uh, divorced, but they be went to his sister's graduation and they didn't invite him. Um, he feels like they didn't invite him because they were embarrassed of him and didn't know how to talk about his gender. And he was really, really hurt. It was a really painful time for them. And there was a lot of tension in the family. Um, but he said, you can come because no one else will be here. So I came down and we were filming. It was maybe day two or three. And I was there with the camera and the door opened and Susie walked in. And apparently Bennett had not told her that, that I would be who I was or that I would be there filming. So she was quite surprised to find a stranger in her house with a camera. Um, and that was an awkward moment. Um, and I put down the camera and introduced myself. And um, she was gracious enough to let me stay. And I did ask her at one point, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to film with you. She said yes, but she really only had the capacity for like five minutes of filming. And then she was like, okay, that's enough. And instead of pushing, I said, absolutely, of course, but continued to have conversations with her. So even after I went back up to the Bay Area, we had phone calls. We, you know, we built a relationship where she could know who I was and also recognize that I, and, and for me to share with her my thoughts about what this what I saw as someone outside of this family. And what I saw was that even though there was a lot of tension and strife in the family right now, I was 100% convinced that everyone in this family loved each other and that they were going to find themselves on the other side of this, this difficult period closer and, and, and with a deeper relationship. I could see something that I think none of them could see in that moment 
And I shared that with her. And I said, I'm not going away. I'm not here to, to portray you as the villain. Um, and, I, I'm, and I'm not going to leave right in the middle. Like, I, I want to commit, if you'll have me, to sort of this whole journey. Um, and after a couple of months, after a lot of conversations, she became more and more willing slowly to be part of the film, to share her experience. And in fact, their relationship now is really tremendous. And she talks about the experience of being in the film and as hard as it is to see herself in that early part of her own journey, how important it was to have a camera and, a, and me there to, to talk to, to talk about things she might not have talked about otherwise. So it really was a, it was a slow, a slow process of, of building a relationship that allowed her to feel comfortable sharing what was a really um, tender moment for her with ultimately with a lot of strangers. So do you think this idea of the filmmaker's inadvertent therapist, uh, is that kind of part of the deal or do you think it's just more of a side effect I think it's different for everyone not every person who participates in a documentary is going to feel that way I certainly didn't set out with that as an intention though I do believe that storytelling is cathartic I do believe that storytelling throughout time and different media um, is often a, a vehicle to personal and collective transformation. Um, I believe storytelling is, is powerful in many ways. And so while I don't think it is inherently part of the process, um, there are many different kinds of films out there. There are many different kinds of people, many different kinds of filmmakers. I think for me personally, having an intimate relationship connection, and by intimate, I just mean that like a deeper relationship with people, especially in a film like this, where it takes years to make and it's, um, asking a lot of the people who are in the film, that is part of why I make films, right? The relationships I form are, are meaningful to me in a way that motivates me to continue to want to make films. And so because Bennett and Joe, and ultimately Susie, even though who's a self-described, she calls herself a, I, I don't remember if it made it into the cut of the film, but she calls herself a stuffer, right? Like an emotional, she likes to stuff her emotions down and not talk about them. Whereas Bennett and Joe are much more expressive and like to talk about their feelings. Um, so I think for us, it did feel like therapy or that it felt like um, the kind of cathartic process that you can have by, you know, talking about things with someone that you're really close to and who's not there to judge you, but who's also outside of the situation enough that they're not in, invested in it being one way or the other. So I think it is. I think it happens in many filmmaking scenarios, but not always. But it's important to recognize that that's potentially a piece, and to hold it with a lot of care. So a human life may not be infinite, but it's certainly more infinite than a production schedule. So I'm curious about how much time did you expect to spend with Bennett, and how much did you wind up spending at the end? <sighs> Very early on, I really had no idea what the film was going to become. I knew what drew me to Bennett, what drew me to Joe, what drew me to Susie, but I, but I wasn't clear on the path that the film would take. I would say a year into filming, it became clear that the story that felt the most resonant was the relationship, the evolution of the relationship between Susie and Bennett. 
between Bennett and his mom, that in order to tell that story, we would have to spend, take as much time as it took for that relationship to transform. So I don't know that I had a clear sense of how long that would be. And certainly many times along the way, I had my own breakdowns of how difficult it was and who knows if it would ever happen and trying to raise the money to keep filming. Um, like many filmmakers, I was, it was very, very bumpy path and a lot of uncertainty. We ended up filming, I think from the very beginning to the time the film we finished edit, it was about five years. So it was a very long process. But I think it required that much time to be able to see a relationship transform. Those things don't happen overnight. And I think if we'd tried to rush it or if we had tried to sort of retell it, recreate it um, later on in the process, you wouldn't feel that experience as deeply. Was that five years of actual biological time or is that including post-production and marketing or so that was from the from the time i met bennett and we had our first time filming together that was through the end of the edit but we also filmed the last couple of scenes of the film late later in the editing process so it it took us editing for almost a year and we had a a pretty late rough cut and it became clear that we needed a little bit more. We needed to film a little bit more. So I, my last, the last two shoots, which represent kind of the end of the film, took place at the end of the edit, which is about five years from the beginning of the process. And so there was a couple of years in there where we filmed much more sporadically. It was quite a bit of intensive filming in the first year and the last year. And then everything in between was more intermittent. So tell me about that intermittent section. I was curious about this, this idea that you need to drop in to somebody's life on some sort of schedule or some sort of cadence. What are you looking for and how are you collaborating with uh, Bennett to make sure you're there at the right time? It's a great question and, and one that I think we as filmmakers grapple with a lot, right? It, it is, at that point, it was my job to be making this film. It was the thing that I was spending all of my time on. And so it was of utmost importance to me to say, you know, if something really big is happening in your life, will you give me a call? Will you let me know what's happening? And and Bennett would say, yes, he was very willing, but he's just living his life. And, and this film is part of his life, but it's not something he's thinking about all the time. So there were quite a few occasions where I would hear either from Bennett or from Joe, that something really big had happened and it had already happened and it was too late to, to film it. And of course, at the time you think, oh no, this is, this is terrible, that like we've missed something absolutely essential. As it turns out, it was not essential. Clearly the film could be made without it. But a lot of it is just being in regular communication and not necessarily being in regular communication to hound someone to tell you when you can show up with a camera. But to be in regular communication because you have a relationship with them. So you're checking in and, you know, you're having a phone call that's like, what's going on? Because you want to know because this person is important to you and you have regular check-ins. And at the same time, you also might say, wow, that sounds really, how would you feel if we filmed that? Or could I come and join you for that uh, with my camera? 
So some of it really was about staying in touch as people and not just staying in touch as a filmmaker. But we absolutely missed things. So I have this image. You can tell me if I'm in the right ballpark of the human behind one shoulder and the filmmaker behind the other. So when mm. you're touching base, can you fully get into the mind of I'm just a human connecting with another human and then when something strikes you, the filmmaker comes alive? Or do you have to kind of keep the filmmaker kind of on a leash? <laughs> That's a really excellent question. And I think it shows up in so many ways. Um, and many of those are, you know, become ethical questions as well. About halfway through the filming process, Joe relapsed after having been sober for over a year Joe and I were very close. We are very close. You know, we already were, you know, thought of each other as friends and not only a filmmaker and film participant relationship. But because addiction and sobriety were part of the story we were telling, and we all agreed that that was an important part of the story we were telling, it felt important to me as a filmmaker to, to ask Joe if I could film with him in this moment where his sobriety, you know, he, he broke his sobriety and, and things were really changing for him. But as a, as a friend and as a person, without my filmmaker hat on, I also really wanted to be clear that the consent that Joe had given before, when he was sober, that that consent was still fully present when I would call him and he, and we were friends and he was in a really bad place and I wanted to make sure I wasn't taking advantage of him or um, assuming that he would make the same choice to have me come film with him if he had been sober. Did he want me to come to see him and come with my camera because he wanted me as his friend there or because he wanted someone to be there or was it because he was really open to and interested in being filmed and seen on camera at that time. And so that was a real dilemma for me. And I had conversations with Joe about it. I had conversations with other friends of mine about it. I had conversations with people who have a lot of deep understanding about addiction. We ultimately decided to film. And, and I checked in with Joe regularly. And I checked in with Joe you know, even a year, a year or two later while we were in the final editing. And, and he was very clear that his, that having the camera there and being witnessed in that way and knowing that people would see it was important to him in that moment. But it was tricky. You know, sometimes he would call me and ask me just to be there for him as a friend and support him, you know, in other ways around his addiction um, in terms of like trying to, as he would try to get sober or as he would try to um, make different choices. And so sometimes I did that without the camera. Sometimes I did it with the camera. And I also knew that I, if I had his consent, I could film and that we could make other decisions in the edit room. Because sometimes you film things and then, sometimes you film things and then later on you realize we shouldn't put this in the film. This is too intimate or it's too personal and it, it doesn't serve the story and it it may cross that line into what is, you know, unnecessary. So let me pivot to the mom. I find her fascinating. She's, in my mind, a proxy for American society when it comes to transgender issues. At her best, she's kind of befuddled in the beginning. And at her worst, she's quite judgmental and not really 
seeing things for what they are. And she comes off not very good early in the film. And yet you clearly were able to nurture that relationship such that she hung in there and in the end really redeems herself and the story. Can you tell me about how that relationship developed? Yeah. I mean, Susie, I have such deep respect for Susie because it's true. She put herself out there when she was not at her best. You know, I think sometimes that was a function of of conversations that we had where I told her my vision, where the story was going, both in real life and on screen, um, and that to really see transformation and to recognize transformation and to recognize kind of how powerful and important it is that she ends up at this place at the end of the film of really showing up for her kid and and supporting her child in a in a powerful way and I, that has continued since the end of the filming she has been its champion in a way that you wouldn't recognize from the beginning of the film that in order to really appreciate that and recognize that in our own selves, we have to be able to see what it's like when we're at the beginning of a journey. And all of us, you know, are at the beginning sometime. We don't know the right words to use. We don't know the right pronouns to use. All of that is new to all of us at some point. And it is through support from our communities. It's support from people who love us. And it's also through getting feedback from people who are angry with us for, for making those choices that we learn and we evolve and we change. Susie was very generous in her willingness to, to be seen when she was not her best. Um, and some of that, I think, was because I asked her and because we had a relationship. She might not have done it otherwise. When someone sits you down and says, tell me what you're thinking, tell me what you're feeling, I want to hear your story, it can feel cathartic to be able to share it. I was terrified when we had to show the film to Susie close to the end of the process. We wanted to show it to everyone before the film was seen by an audience, but I was really nervous that she would be very unhappy with the film. And I think what was really surprising was that although she looked back at the past and said, oh, I wish I hadn't, you know, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't expressed that thought, that she saw that that was true and she knew that that was going to be powerful for other people. We had a, a screening at Frameline Film Festival in San Francisco, and it was in a really big theater. There was a huge audience of lots of queer folks and allies, and everybody in the film was in attendance. And at the end of the film, the audience gave Susie a standing ovation when she stood up to, to come up to the stage. And I thought that was such a powerful thing because so many folks in our community have been really hurt by family members who don't support them. It meant a lot that she was there and she stood up on stage after that screening and she apologized to the audience and she said, I'm so sorry for what I said. I'm so sorry for how I felt or how I thought at that time. I'm sorry for the hurt that I caused, and I, but I'm really grateful to be in this place, you know, in my relationship with my child, in my relationship with other queer folks. And it was really emotional. And I think if we're not willing to show ourselves when we're not perfect, then how is it that we ask anybody else to shift or change, or how can we believe that, that that's possible? I think we need to see that 
in order to to make our own transformations. That's really beautiful because in the end, you don't wind up just making a film. You wind up changing lives in a very visible way. That must be quite a wonderful feeling. It's been extraordinary. I am so grateful and and really amazed <laughs> to this day. This film um, made its first festival premiere in 2016. It was um, broadcast in the U.S. on Independent Lens in 2017. So it's been a few years. Um, and the film continues to to travel the world. But it also, I get messages, emails from folks who talk about how the film transformed their relationships with their families, how it transformed their ideas about trans people. People constantly tell me that they this is the first thing they give to their friends when their friends say that they have a child who just has come out as trans. I think it has made an impact, and, and, and I... I'm so grateful for that because it, it moved me. It was something that I cared about to reflect a part of my community. I'm not trans. I'm queer. And many of the people, closest people in my life are of many genders, including um, trans men. It was really important to me, but I didn't realize how important it would be to so many others. And, and that's been so, so gratifying. So let me ask you a mechanical question, if I could. Um, you're, sure. you're filming all these intimate soul-bearing scenes and there's technology involved and I'm I'm wondering how big was your crew was it just you and how did you handle audio and video without it taking over the moment so 95% of the cinematography in the film was was me filming and the vast majority of the audio recording was also me recording at the same time and so you know I look at it now and I think well it's you know the production values I think it looks good enough, but it's it's not, um, it doesn't have the level of production values in terms of, of picture and sound that you could get if you had a highly skilled crew of five people. But I think for a variety of reasons, it wouldn't have been possible that way to, to make this film. I was able to go and spend time with Bennett, go and spend time with Joe for days on end. I could just camp out on their couch uh, for a week. <laughs> and my only expense was hard drives and food and travel. And that just wouldn't have been possible if I had to pay a crew for every day that I shot on this film. But I think you're right. There's also, it's a different experience when this is just Shalise and her camera versus, okay, now we're going to spend X number of hours and we have to maximize our day. So we're going to do an, you know, a 10 hour day. We're going to take a lunch in the middle. We've got a full crew. We've got a producer. We've got everybody around for folks to be just kind of living their life can be more challenging. I mean, it's done. There are many beautiful verite films that are shot with a bigger crew, but I think in this case, the intimacy and the stories, the sort of moments that you see in the film were possible, both because it was really just me and my camera and sometimes one other person who also was kind of in community was another trans person who was there and a friend as well also because I could just be there for long 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 periods of time and have my camera to the side for four or five hours and then something would happen and I'd pick up my camera and I'd film so that flexibility as well as the very light footprint 
I think made it possible, even if that also meant that the sound mixer at the end of the filmmaking process, <laughs> you know, was uh, had extra work to do to make the audio quality better. Was it a camera mounted uh, shotgun or how did you get the audio? Um, so I usually had a, a camera mounted shotgun and I also had two lobs. Usually if it was Bennett and Joe, I had a lob on each of them. And if I was filming with both of them, I would put both of my lobs into the camera. I only had two channels of audio into the camera and I occasionally would also have an external recorder to try to have more channels of audio, but that's usually a recipe for disaster because if no one is monitoring that, you know, who knows what you're getting. So not having a professional sound person, I think was, was in the end, maybe somewhat of a liability in terms of the quality. But so, yes, it was often a couple of lavaliers and then uh, an on-camera shotgun and do your best at getting the best sound you can given the environment that you're in. Putting on a lav could kind of disrupt the moment. So how would you handle that? Would you lav them up early in the day and just say, well, just in case, I'll be capturing audio the whole day, or at least if I'm running the camera. How do you, just the mechanics of making sure that you're ready without actually kind of affecting the moment? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wasn't ready. <laughs> sometimes I was like, hold on, let me, you know, um, fortunately over time, right. You know, we spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours together over the making of the film. And so everybody got really good at the logistics of what it meant. You know, they, they learned that, yes, sometimes you have to stop and lava up or sometimes, for example, they got really good at just knowing that if I was following them, they didn't need to like hold the door open for me. Like it was okay to go through the door and just keep doing their thing and I would figure it out on my own. So there was a kind of training that we all were going through to encourage them to just ignore me as much as possible and at the same time wait for me when they needed to, right? Um, wait for me to get out of the car first before they got out of the car. So there was some choreography that I think they were very generous to help with. Um, yes, often I would show up and we'd put lobs on everybody and turn them off if we were going to take three or four hours. But sometimes you'd miss things or sometimes the battery would start to die and you'd have to, you know, run over and be like, hold on, hold on, <laughs> change the batteries. Um, it was often the comedy of errors. You mentioned the hundreds of hours, and then you just talked about the vexing logistics. When you multiply that, it's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of strain. I'm, I'm curious, what is the mental game of a filmmaker? How do you pace yourself emotionally, mentally, physically to like keep it up over the course of years and years and hundreds of hours? What did you learn about that part of the process? Mm, you know, at this point in my career I direct but I produce other people's films and I consult a lot with um, emerging filmmakers or even mid-career filmmakers a lot of my work is moral support <laughs> because it is so incredibly difficult to to do this work when you are making an independent documentary without a lot of financial resources um, or infrastructure, when you are making a longitudinal documentary, when you are making a film that is really important to you as a, as a filmmaker, when it is a passion project, um, as well as a 
you know, maybe a job, maybe you're getting paid enough to do it, but often not. I mean, I know filmmakers who are very experienced, very have, you know, had films at Sundance, have had films distributed widely, are really working filmmakers who will make a film that matters to them that doesn't have a lot of funding and can go years without getting paid um, and hours and hours and and just can eat your life. So I think this is a question that our industry and our field is grappling with constantly. I think it, it, is, it is essential to have a community of other, of peers who can relate to what you're going through, um, can support you. It's good to have, you. it's essential to have the support of the people in your personal life. Um, it's much, much harder if you, if you don't. But it's also, I think, important for us as, a, as an industry to talk about what it would mean to resource more independent film better, um, to have the resources spread more evenly across the fields. Because there's a lot of money in documentary, but it is very narrowly distributed. And I think it can be emotionally, financially taxing, and, and it can be taxing on your health and your relationships. So, you know, I would never advise someone to not follow their passions, but I think it's also important for us as filmmakers to remember that we're not of much use to anyone if we spread ourselves so thin that we can't function, right? Um, and that organizing and advocating for a more sustainable and equitable documentary industry is really important. You know, I think the move in a lot of um, organizing, there is union organizing that's happening. There are um, many af affinity groups that have emerged, Brown Girls Doc Mafia, ADOC, uh, Forward Doc, and, and many others that are affinity groups of filmmakers who are there to support one another. Um, the DPA, the Documentary Producers Alliance, um, so many, that I think that's a really important move towards collective organizing for better, not only better working conditions when you're working for a company, but also just best practices for how we find more sustainability in our field. Yeah, many a fine film has been made by a documentarian who wound up never making another film. I noticed on your IMDb, you have not yet gone back to the well. Uh, do you intend to at some point? So I have not directed another feature-length documentary, that's true. Um, and I think I will at some point, but because it is so difficult, um, I think for me it has to be something I am willing to put everything on the line for, for, for a significant period of time or to have my passion align with commercial interests enough to know that I can raise the money <laughs> to make that film. I have um, last year directed a short film. Um, it's a seven-minute film um, called To the Future with Love that um, is out on POV and, and available for folks to see. And that was really nice to work on a short film because it was a much less um, taxing in terms of the, the time and the resources. There are several films that I have thought about making, but then when I really sit down and think about what it takes to 
fund them to um, to support myself and the and to make the film at the level that I would want to make it in terms of production values. That yeah, it's it's pretty daunting. That said, I think there are more films that I would like to make. I also am spending a lot of my time in community building, right? Field building, because I think that's really important. The number of filmmakers I work with who say, oh my God, I'm never going to make a film after this. This is, this is it, is significant. And whether that's true or not, they may finish <laughs> the project and then decide that the, the call of a filmmaking is too great to ignore. But I think until we have more support for independent film, we will see a lot of really talented folks burn out. How do you juggle the funding aspects early on when you don't know what you've got? And it's probably a little harder to raise at that point. What did did you learn? Yeah. No, and I I learned a lot not only through the making of Real Boy, but in the years, in the intervening years where I've had much more access to seeing how the sausage gets made, if you will, um, in funding documentaries. And you're absolutely right. It is a big hurdle to get over. And many people who have stories that they want to tell and that they're really well positioned to tell, if they don't have access to money of their own um, and or the ability to call in a whole lot of favors, it becomes cost prohibitive um, in many ways, right? It's not just the costs, the hard costs. It's also if you if you don't have some other source of income or wealth to fall back on, even the time it takes, even if you have your own camera and you are filming yourself and your you know your overhead costs are are limited, if it's going to take you time to make this film, that's time away from a paying job. So, I think this question of equity in who gets to make independent films, who gets to make passion project films, is also really, really important to acknowledge that many of the people who get to make these films, even if they don't have a lot of funding, are folks with access to wealth one way or the other. So advice, I mean, again, I think we need to organize collectively to shift that over the long term. I think over the short term, there's not a lot of... um, funding available for short films. There's not a lot of, you know, the distribution options tend to also not come with very big paychecks. So not that this is a way to to make money, but in some ways making a short film first um, is at least a little less resource intensive. And so I think there is room to, to think about telling stories in shorter formats For people just starting out, it's really difficult because a lot of the development funding that is available in in documentary is predominantly available to experienced filmmakers who have a track record, who have access to gatekeepers. So that can be difficult. There are a lot more um, labs and um, fellowships that are out there that I think are worth looking into for emerging filmmakers. There are many that are specifically for communities that have had less access, whether that be communities of color or queer folks, women, whatever it may, you know, what, wherever your cohort, you know, may be, there are often 
specific resources for communities that have not been represented in film. And the recognition is you can take, you can go to every lab, you can be part of every fellowship, but until someone gives you the money to make your film in a really meaningful way, it can still be hard. You know, I do think that that public television continues to be a place where there is a lot of support. A lot of first-time filmmakers get their films funded and resourced through ITBS, um, which is a co-production for PBS and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And the advantage of, you know, joining a community of filmmakers or, a you know, a group is that you also have resources and you can build relationships with folks who may be able to do you a favor, right? Like, I'll come and edit with you for a week if you come and do this for me for a week. Um, it's not perfect, but I do think the more you have community, the more support you have, the more resources you have than trying to do it alone. Uh, Shalise, this has been so much fun, so interesting. For people who loved Real Boy, what other work have you been associated with that you would like for them to see next? So To the Future with Love is another short film that I made in collaboration with a local artist here in Los Angeles who is a um, non-binary trans person, and he tells his own story through original drawings and animation. It's a short film um, that you can find on the POV website. And the other film that I would invite people to find online for free available on YouTube is called Texas Strong. It's a film that I produced um, with Lindsay Dryden for the ACLU. And it is a film that uh, won an Emmy Award um, a couple of years ago that features a really powerful mom and her trans daughter. She's a um, devout Christian in Texas who had to make a lot of changes in her own life to show up for her child and she has become a fierce advocate of queer and trans people and someone who has a really unique voice and can speak to uh, people of faith particularly in the Christian community about issues that are, are really um, important so that's called Texas Strong and it's available on YouTube well, Shalise, I thank you so much. It really is a beautiful film, and I encourage anyone listening to go watch it. It's, to your point, it really unfolds a very complicated issue that all of America, I think, is trying to sort through right now. And I think to see it transmitted through the lives of real people struggling with this on both the inside and the outside is incredibly helpful and educational. So wonderful job, and thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Scott. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again to Shalise Haas for talking with me today. Her film, Real Boy, can be seen in all the usual places online, including for free on Tubi TV. I look forward to seeing you next time when I talk to Zachary Levy, who followed an American original, a New Jersey scrap metal hauler who fancies himself to be the strongest man in the world. It's a fun film and a great conversation. I'll see you then. Thank you.